0: Welcome back to the Go Dig a Hole podcast. This is Chris Sims. This episode originally aired sometime in 2015 on the Archaeology Podcast Network. It has been edited for content and sound as a rebroadcast without their branding or advertisements. I've said this before as I've re-edited some of the other archive episodes, but it's an interesting experience to go back in time for the Go Dig a Hole podcast and take stock of how much I've grown as an archaeologist and as a podcaster in the last several years. When I was in undergrad and even in grad school, I didn't have many opportunities to learn about Native American tribal consultation. Similarly, I didn't encounter tribal consultation as part of cultural resource management until I moved from Kentucky to Oregon probably about, um, what, three, four years ago, uh, And coordination with Native American tribes is a lot more common uh, in the Pacific Northwest. And also my roles as an archaeologist have changed to where it's been essential for me to learn about and build relationships with tribes in the area. So the last few years have been a learning process for me, to say the least. When I first had this conversation with Jessica Yaquinto of Living Heritage Anthropology, who also hosts the Heritage Voices podcast... I was really new to the whole thing. I still have a lot to learn, but this podcast episode marks somewhat of a starting point for me in learning about tribal consultation. So for more about this really important aspect of anthropological archaeology, I recommend checking out the entire back catalog of episodes at the Heritage Voices podcast. There are a lot of important indigenous perspectives shared there, and they're chock full of knowledge. Also, uh, I'm getting over a pretty bad cold. So, uh pardon my voice on this episode. And also pardon uh all of the sounds on the uh <laughs> the the rebroadcast here. Uh our recording technology and and techniques and editing techniques have changed a lot to say the least in the last few years. So, uh enjoy. Also, uh the whole gang is getting back in the studio here pretty soon and uh we're going to learn the ropes at the new x-ray fm studio uh we're all pretty excited and there are a lot of opportunities so um we're going to be sorting out kind of how to go forward with this but um for now the patreon is still paused uh, but we're going to bring you some uh old archive episodes and uh at least one new episode uh before we fire that back up but once the patreon is live again uh you'll be able to support us um, and we'll have some extra goodies for, uh, all the supporters who have stuck with us over the years. So thanks a lot for, you know, listening and sharing and, and, uh, showing us love. Uh, it's, it's really, really humbling and, and really great to be a part of, um, an archeological community that is, um, you know, really supporting each other. Welcome to the 14th episode of the Go Dig a Hole podcast. I'm here with Jessica Yaquinto in Denver, Colorado.
1: I'm actually in Cortez, Colorado. Ah. Uh, <laughs> close enough. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's the, the archaeology mecca down here, so it's pretty, pretty sweet. Oh, place. very cool.
0: So, uh, Jessica's a cultural anthropologist with um, Living Heritage, the company, and also starting up a podcast on the Archaeology Podcast Network for indigenous issues called Heritage Voices. Uh, Jessica, could you give us a little bit of your background and, and tell us a little bit about those?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, I am originally from Tucson. So, I went to the University of Arizona for undergrad. And when I was there, I started taking anthropology classes and started volunteering first and then working for the Bureau of Applied Research and Anthropology. Uh, so my background is, is very applied or very focused on how anthropology can make the world a better place. Nice. And then, so I worked at Bureau of Applied Research and Anthropology, or BARA, for four years. And then I went on to Northern Arizona University where I got my master's. So I'm a NAU mafia member, for <laughs> anyone that knows what that means. And uh, briefly did a foray into medical anthropology.
2: Oh, cool! But
1: then I also did my thesis on. I, I worked at uh, Grand Canyon National mm-hmm. Park, and worked for their cultural resources and tribal programs. So. Um,
0: That's a really well-rounded uh, skill set, right there.
1: Yeah. The, the medical anthropology, it seems very random, but in a lot of ways, I was working for a really great professor at NAU, and she really honed my methodology. Uh, I mean, I got really great experience working at BARA for four years in undergrad, uh, just more on the the practical, how do you work with tribes, all of, all of that yeah. kind of stuff. But the, the NAU uh, experience really just took it to that next level um so even though it's it's pretty different than what i'm doing now it's still it was still pretty incredible
2: that's really sure. cool
1: yeah so yeah so i worked um for Grand canyons tribal program and cultural resources program and then again briefly into medical anthropology again and ultimately my husband um he got a job with the, the blm in northwest colorado and in a, in a very small town of about 2,200 people, that's, you know, an hour 40 from most grocery shopping oh. and stuff. So, um, <laughs> so basically at that point, I decided that if I wanted to do this kind of work, I was going to have to find my own way and make a way for myself. So that's when I started uh, Living Heritage Anthropology in 2014. And it's been great. It's been really good. Um, Mostly, so far, most of my projects have been working with the three youth tribes and in partnership with uh, Dominguez Anthropological Research uh-huh. Group, which basically they do the archaeology side of the projects and I do more of the cultural anthropology, ethnography, working with um, the youth side. So we do some, some interdisciplinary Projects and they've mostly focused around looking at U trails from both archaeology and cultural perspectives. Nice. But we also got a couple new projects that are pretty exciting coming up. We just got awarded a project through um, the BLM Monticello Field uh-huh. Office, so it's going to be um, in Cedar Mesa, which I don't know if you know much about the Southwest, but it's it's pretty incredible archaeology.
2: Nice.
0: Could you uh break down kind of some some of uh what you would expect to find down there for our listeners?
1: Yeah, so um Cedar Mesa, I mean it's not, not too too far from Mesa Verde, um, but over in, in Utah, southeast Utah. So it's not the big, massive cliff dwellings like you find at Mesa Verde, but they're just everywhere. Oh, cool. um, yeah, it's there's just structures and a rock art and Um, it's just one of the densest concentrations of archaeology in the country, and it's just absolutely incredible. Right now, actually, a group of the tribes are fighting to have it be declared a national monument,
2: that whole area,
1: um, under the, the Bears Ears National Monument is what they're calling it. So it's really exciting to be able to be part of this whole process and starting to do a lit review for the the field office, just so they can know more about the tribes and their connections to the area during this whole process. Nice.
0: So, when you're doing like your lit review for that, uh, are you focusing mm-hmm. more on like the cultural and the ethnographical side, or the
2: archaeological side?
1: Yeah. So, I'll, it's so it's me and my. I'm partnering on this project with Dr. Van Vlack, She was uh, she got her PhD out of the University of Arizona, and we worked together previously, but. Yes, we're going to be looking at the the ethnographic side of things. So more um, what the different tribes' connection to the area are, and that may be as specific as particular rock art sites, or it may be the landscape as a whole. Um, So basically just trying to gather up all the different information out there on all the different tribes that have expressed a connection to that area
0: wow that's awesome
1: yeah it's pretty <laughs> incredible um and that that project too this is just the first year this is the the year that they know the blm knows that they have guaranteed funding for but it has the potential to continue for another four years and who knows what it will morph into so that's pretty exciting yeah
0: that sounds like a really amazing yeah, project to be a awesome. part of
1: Yeah. And then there's another really amazing project that we're just starting to actually. So with that, that archaeology company that I mentioned, Dominguez Anthropological Research Group, um, and History Colorado, which History Colorado houses basically the state's history museum and um, the state historic preservation office, for those of you that know what that is. Um, And... Uh, just a lot of of other things, and so we're partnered with them and Darg, the Dominguez Anthropological Research Group out of uh-huh. Grand Junction, on an NSF grant that just got awarded. Nice. And basically, nice. yeah, what it is is it's looking at U traditional knowledge and STEM, so science, technology, engineering, and math, um, particularly through the lens of archaeology and uh, cultural anthropology, and kind of combining the two. So basically, we're going to be doing camps with youth kids, where they're going to be learning about archaeology and cultural anthropology, as well as from their elders learning about traditional knowledge. And then, um, basically, videos from that, along with other traditional knowledge sources, are gonna be converted into exhibits at the Ute Museum so that all kids in, in the state of Colorado and, and elsewhere can learn about um, science, technology, engineering, and math through Ute culture, basically. Wow,
0: so as an anthropologist, this sounds like the dream job right there, to be able to <laughs> have all of yeah. the components <laughs> of like a, a four-field anthropological approach and then also you know, accommodate oral traditions and, and native, you know, culture into STEM. That's amazing.
1: Right. Yeah. It's pretty funny too. Cause my husband's an archeologist. All of our friends are archeologists. I mean, I went to a program that was mostly archeologists. I mostly work with archeologists. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it's, it's funny people always, um, they always think that I'm an archeologist and so but it it's really nice in that way that I get to really bridge the two disciplines like you're saying. Well more than two, yeah. but yeah, I get to bridge across anthropology, which is pretty special. That is
0: amazing and it sounds like you know, coming up to this point where you're working now, you you you're really drawing on your well rounded skill set and you've got a real diverse background and you're able to apply that in some really diverse settings that sound exciting and incredibly rewarding as well. Mm-hmm
1: yeah I mean I'd love to branch out even more I've really heavily pretty heavily focused on the American Southwest the Great Basin and a little bit into um, Mexico and and Latin America but I yeah I'd really love to continue to to expand my my reach and learn about new places and new people yeah
0: Um, so are there other programs like the one that you're doing uh in the Southwest or in the region that you're working
1: Um, far as working with uh elders and, yeah. and kids or yeah. so there's been some of that i know nau had a really big program a really great one that i hope that they can get funded again in the future and it was called um footprints of the ancestors oh, cool. and basically um it started with hobi but i think they were expanding into other tribes as well but basically, it was archaeologists going out with youth and elders to sites and and having the the elders and the archaeologists talk about the place, and so the kids could learn about it from multiple perspectives again. What? Yeah, and I think I mean Crow Canyon does a lot with youth and elders out of actually out of right here in Colorado. Nice. But yeah, I mean I know I hear about more than that, but those are, are kind of the the big ones I'd say. Yeah.
0: So, Jessica, this is all incredible, and I think a lot of archaeologists, especially early career archaeologists would be fascinated to learn about working with Native American groups you know learn about that whole process from square one and you know speaking from my experience, I grew up in the southeast and went to school in the southeast and you know spent most of my career as an archaeologist working in the southeast where, uh, you know, from what I was taught in classes and from the work I was doing in CRM, there wasn't as tangible a connection between the material culture that we were excavating in the field and, you know, the living groups that deposited them there and, you know, the living groups that, you know, were still in the area. There's not as strong of a connection there. So, um, for me it's fascinating to hear this and i'm learning a lot as we're going through this but i feel like a lot of our listeners will too especially in the in the southeast where you know they're probably going through the same things i was so could you break down kind of what it's like to work with native american groups from square one like just give it to me from the basics
1: Yeah, so first I want to say that I definitely was blessed to grow up in the the Southwest where there definitely is much more, and I mean, I know it's been a process and there's still plenty of people out there that don't act this way, but there is definitely a recognition of of the connection between the archaeology and the tribal groups today and really impressive work coming out of the Southwest from a lot of archaeologists in in working together with tribes but i mean even in even in the southwest even in tucson um, where i grew up you know i was working um for the arizona state museum i was they had a an internship program where you could basically give tours in the museum and every single time it seemed like there would be a kid when we started that would be like oh we're going back in time <laughs> you know like there was and this is in Tucson where, you know, there's tribes literally within the city. Um, you know, like the Pascoyaki tribe. And kids still didn't understand that there there was tribes that there are tribes still living today. And I mean it it just kinda of blew yeah. my mind as the yeah. Tucson that every single time that was the the response. But But yeah, working with tribes, so are you referring more to um, a tribal consultation sense starting at square one? Okay, so again, I've worked on tribal consultation projects from both a contractor perspective and a federal government perspective, and that might be an important distinction to start with is uh, there's... As as my boss at Grand Canyon used to say, there's there's little C consultation and there's big C <laughs> consultation. <laughs> and so little C consultation is building that relationship and that's a lot more of what I do on the contractor side because I as a contractor I can't do big C consultation, which means that formal government to government interaction
2: okay. Okay.
1: so so for for people that i'm losing right <laughs> now so tribal consultation is based on this concept called the trust relationship so it's based on the idea that when the u.s was founded or when um we started coming in that all of the land that is now the U.S. was indigenous land and that through time that land through good ways and ill-gotten ways has transferred to the U.S. and in recognition of this and in recognition of tribe's status as sovereign nations within this nation. So basically, when, when, um, when people first started coming in making treaties with tribes as formal uh, other nations, yeah. basically, yeah. that because all of this land was theirs, there's a responsibility of the U.S. government to look out for tribes' best interests, basically so that means looking out for the natural and cultural resources and other things that are important to tribes so anytime the federal government basically does anything they need to first talk to the appropriate tribes so usually um it's the the tribes that are connected to the land that that agency Uh manages so like uh, working with um on the cedar mesa project for example they have a list of all the tribes that have expressed interest or have some sort of historic connection to that land and you know that can that can be open to change if additional tribes later express interest okay Um, but then it can also be like the department of justice you know and they might have to consult with all tribes so it varies a yeah, lot it there. sounds like
0: it has the potential to be quite complicated so yes in the cedar mesa example that's the one that's in the big ears uh national monument area right uh-huh. Bears, Bears ears yeah uh so uh that is is that considered treaty land or is treaty land only within a reservation
1: so trust land um okay because there's there's multiple so treaty land is what is land that was set aside based on treaty um trust land is all of the land that the u.s government is holding for tribes so basically reservations um so in the Bears Ears case, um, I do believe, if, as far as the proposed National Monument, I do believe there is actually some reservation land in the, propose, in the uh-huh. proposal. But, um, the BLM land, um, obviously, it belongs to the Bureau of Land Management, but it might have been originally part of that treaty land. I'm not positive okay. in that case. But it for sure would have been part of what was considered the aboriginal land. So aboriginal land for a tribe is any land that they would have been part of prior to to incursion, basically.
0: Okay, so like prior to Uh, contact with settlers and prior to being recognized as tribes. Okay, gotcha. So I would imagine that encompasses uh, vast swaths of the west and southwest that... Uh, you know, fall into all sorts of complicated gray areas and complicated, like, land ownerships.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, federal Indian law is just about one of the most confusing things you can get into. Um, so excuse me if I misspeak on any of this. But yes, um, you know, and it got even more complicated with what was known as the Dawes Act, or um, allotment, as it was more commonly known, which was the early, wait, so let's see, it was late 19th century, early 20th century, when the government basically tried to break up reservations into private oh, land, God. so they set aside, yeah, <laughs> they set aside um, chunks of land per family, and the way that they did it, it wasn't really set up um in the best interests of the tribes, I mean, I'm, I think at the time they thought it was, but you know, they didn't, um, explain things like taxes in a lot of cases or, um, basically it was set up for a lot of that land to get taken away, or at least that was the result, whether or not it was set up intentionally that yeah. way. So basically a lot of res- reservations you have what is called checkerboard land, which is basically little tiny parcels of private land within the reservation and it makes things incredibly complicated for everybody yeah, involved. <laughs> yeah but anyway sorry to get back to your original question so the federal agency when they want to do something so like for example when i was at grand canyon one of the big projects that i was working on was the backcountry management uh-huh. plan so the park was just looking at How do we want to manage all of the parts of the park that aren't either A, the main visitor areas, um, like the South Rim and the North Rim, or B, along the river? So how do we manage basically the entire rest of the park, which is huge? Um, And so for that process, um, what we did was we sent out letters uh, letting all of there, they have eleven traditionally associated tribes, and they um, they use traditionally associated instead of culturally affiliated to avoid the Nagpra or Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation ah. Act But um, but yeah, so they sent out letters to eleven tribes, and then we set up informational meetings for all the tribes, and this was very 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 early on before anything was decided on when they were just starting the whole process and and starting to think about what was what they wanted to even talk about so there was informational meetings and then additional meetings and and conversations throughout the whole process and then at the end so after I left the Draft EIS would have been sent out that would have been sent to tribes again, another opportunity to comment. Um, and then I believe they get an opportunity possibly to comment on the final before it gets released as well. But the point there is that it, it's an ongoing process. Tribal consultation is not just a checkbox yeah. yeah. or a letter, you know, basically it's continual updates throughout. Lots of of conversations, more in depth and information sessions, and making sure that everybody understands what's being proposed, and that there's the opportunity to discuss different concerns, different possibilities. Um, and so, basically, you want to make sure that you're going in to talk to tribes a early. Yeah. B, (laughs) often. C, with an open mind, because, you know, sometimes the ideas they have and that they come up with are way better than what the federal agency comes up with initially. And if the federal agency goes in very closed-minded and very, this is what we want to accomplish, the tribe is not going to, they're going to shut off because they, I mean, you know, Again, you know when someone's talking to you like yeah.
0: that. Plus, I'd imagine, you know, there's a long history of a couple hundred years of, you know, yeah. <laughs> really unfair dealings with the government. So I'd imagine once things start to even look like they're going to go sideways, uh, you know, it's probably pretty quick to shut down.
1: Yeah, absolutely. One hundred percent. And that's the other point that I would say off of off of this, that tribal consultation is really about building relationships. Um, It's really, it's a long-term thing. It's not project by project, at least if it's done right. Um, You know, it's, it's about getting to know people and um, building that trust and, and just basically, you know, showing that you can be counted on with their,
0: cultural heritage. Yeah, absolutely. And so it sounds like, you know, not only is it a steady conversation and a lot of kind of community organization throughout the, the duration of a project, but it sounds like your job isn't quite over once the project is, is that right?
1: Right. And that is one really important thing that I would really love to highlight that I didn't even think about highlighting before, but, um, is that tribes love to see what you've done. So, you know, if you're working on an archeology span project related to a tribe's land or their ancestral land or Aboriginal land, since we talked about that, um, you know, going and going to their events, maybe having a booth or um, something like that, or just if there's some way that you can disseminate that information back to the community, that's, that's huge because, especially in cultural anthropology, but I'm sure in archaeology too, these projects are done about them all the time, and they never see any results yeah. from them. So if you can first a, let them know, let them know how it went. You know they're they're interested, especially if it is directly related to them and their heritage, um, and b. You know, try and make sure that you're giving something back to this community whose, whose ancestors created the the archaeology or the, the places that we're, we're working on
0: today. Definitely. That's really amazing. And I think that those are some important skills for archaeologists to keep in mind or at least be alert or sensitive to as they're you know, doing any sort of work, whether it's, you know, for CRM or for, you know, federal archaeology and stuff like that, you know, to remember that we're part of a broader discipline of anthropology and that there are living people involved. And, you know, I know that the tendency for at least, uh, you know, CRM projects is as soon as the project is over, you know, more often than not, you've got another project that you're going to, or, you know, you can't really afford to stick around. So, you know, it's, very fast paced and you tend to not really develop any roots in whatever the the project location is um so it sounds like a very different kind of pace of work and different like scope of work because you're so connected to the people there right which
1: is probably why like i was saying before i've I've mostly only worked in the the southwest great basin a little bit into mexico um because it takes time but um, yeah not you know thinking about what you were just saying right there about archaeologists and how it's hard because you're more likely to move place to place. One thing that matters a lot to tribes that I think that you can do anywhere is just when you're approaching an archaeology site so just to approach it with respect um and just just be respectful of of the place and what it might mean to the people that are connected to it. Um, and another note for archaeologists, too, for CRM archaeologists, is when I was at the, the SAA's, the Society for American Archaeology, conference yeah. last year, there was a session about um, tribal historic preservation offices, um, officers, TIPOs, and someone was talking about working with tribal monitors and one person in the audience raised their hand, and they they mentioned because they had previously worked for a tribe, which by the way, you can do c r m for a tribe nice nice <laughs> um, uh, that they went over one time and talked to tribal monitors at um, at a a survey i think, and the tribal monitor said that that was the first time that anyone. Any CRM archaeologist had ever taken the time to talk oh, to wow. them. Oh wow! So if you're ever working on a CRM project and there's tribal monitors, take the time, get to know them, learn, learn from them, and and you know maybe they'll be interested too in learning about what you're doing, and they can bring that back to the reservation as well. That
0: is some really good advice. So Jessica had uh, recounted an example from last year's SAA where a tribal monitor had mentioned that, uh, CRM archaeologists had never really taken the time to, you know, talk to them and make a connection there. And I think that that really highlights one of the recurring themes that I try to do with, uh, this series on Go Dig a Hole is to build a more inclusive archaeology. Um, so Jessica, what do you think, we could do as anthropologists or archaeologists to build a more inclusive, uh, anthropological archaeology in regard to working with native communities?
1: Yeah. Um, so there's a, a couple of thoughts that come to my mind. First of all, it would be really great if we could get, um, some indigenous archaeologists on this podcast. Yeah. Um, so there's some really great ones out in the Southwest. um, and I know that it, it always makes such a huge difference when you see people that are like you doing something. So just when I worked at Grand Canyon, I remember that we brought out a group of kids. Well, we brought out two separate groups of kids. And in one group of kids, um, one of the, the kids said to me, you know, no offense, ma'am, but there's a lot of, of <laughs> white faces here. Um, and the second group of kids, we um, made a point. There was a, a Navajo, or Dene as they call themselves, um, archaeologist that worked for the park. And we made a point of um, having him come out and do oh, an little nice. at- at- demonstration for the kids. And oh, he about rock art and things like that, too. And... Um, these these groups of kids were from the Boys and Girls Club. So the the group that um, that the Navajo archaeologist was there for was a mixed group. It was mostly Hispanic and Native American. And the impact on those kids in seeing, you know, quote unquote, somebody like them doing archaeology was just yeah. huge. Um, yeah. So definitely I would say if we could try and get um, somebody on your show or just, um, you know, in general more. um,
0: Yeah, I would absolutely love that. So we can talk Uh, after the show about, uh, you know, anybody that you know who could get involved with the show. And um, like we had mentioned at the beginning of this episode, you're going to have your podcast too. And so I I think it'll be, your podcast is also going to be, a really great resource for native voice.
1: Yeah, that's my goal for sure, is that um, ideally, in the long run, my, my goal, to get there at least, um, is to make sure to have
2: an indigenous
1: guest or co-host on nice. each episode. Um, that's because it just seems silly to have <laughs> me talking to other white people about trans. <laughs> um, so... Um, yeah, so that's, that's definitely a big goal. Um, another thing that I would say is to, if you can, if you're still a student, take some Native American studies classes. I think just having that understanding of the history and why, um, a lot of what I'm talking about is, is so challenging for tribes in ways that are unexpected for a lot of people. a Native American studies class would really help bring a lot of perspective on that.
0: Yeah, I'd imagine a lot of perspective for, you know, anthropology and archaeology, but also for current events. You know, we've got the Dakota Access Pipeline, and I think that that's probably just the most notorious incident as of late, but issues like that are persisting, you know, throughout Native American communities and, you know, it's the lack of voice that makes it seem so extreme when you know dakota access starts getting covered in the media they're like oh my goodness how could this ever happen and it's like actually this is kind of always happening
1: (laughs) (laughs) this is kind of a thing oh god okay um that that reminds me of i was on facebook not too long ago when all that was really happening and someone was saying you know Basically, this is a national conversation right now because of <laughs> Bernie Sanders. And blah, 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 Thank you, blah, white blah. savior. <laughs> I, 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 white savior. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I had to write back and say, um, excuse me, but yeah. this is really a, a Native American-run um, protest, and it's been building in Native American yeah. activism for a long time. Thank you very much. <laughs> but... Um, yeah, so the, another thing that I would say, too, is that, um, you know, there's a lot of economic barriers for a lot of tribes um, and other groups to become archaeologists, you know, it takes a lot of, of schooling, and usually away from, from home, a lot of times there's, there can be some pretty strong cultural barriers against working with archaeology. Um, just because it's seen, like with the Navajo, for example, as um, extremely powerful and therefore kind of dangerous, um, and so there's there's a lot of um, barriers there. And something like, for example, with the SAA, there are scholarships um, for uh, Native American archaeologists, that's one way, for example, um, that the discipline can help break yeah. down some of those barriers and, um, try to, try to create that more inclusive archaeology nice. for sure.
0: Well, right. I guess another question that kind of relates well, to that right. is, um, like, what are we doing well as archaeologists? um, in the, in the broader field when it comes to working with, uh, Native American groups? Like you had highlighted the work that you're doing. Do you have any other examples or just kind of general practices that, you know, we're doing well, or maybe that, you know, are almost there that we could be doing better? Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, again, um, the Southwest is my best frame of reference. Um, I mean, I've worked in Great Basin and some other places as well, but Definitely the Southwest, there's a really strong effort to work with tribes. Um, There's, you know, TJ Ferguson, for example, who does community-based participatory research, which I am a huge advocate for, where basically you work with the community and have the community be researchers throughout, um, even hiring tribal members to do interviews and things like that um, for the the archaeology. Um so that's um I mean in the in the Southwest, yeah, I would I would say that in general um archaeology is doing really well in working with tribes and in trying to help answer tribal questions with archaeology so a lot of times the tribes have their own questions and they really want to learn about their history through archaeology um and in the southwest i'd say that they've done a a pretty good job of of trying to um yeah help answer those questions yeah that a priority um one thing that I would say that that I've seen that is one easy thing, that if you're ever in this situation, um, especially if you ever, if anyone, any of you listening, ever end up becoming a federal archaeologist, is if you're ever working with tribes, um, take <laughs> notes. <laughs> um, because I, I had... Uh, I, there's a tribe that I've been working with that they had a very esteemed elder pass um not too long ago, and he had been working for years going around working um with federal agencies all all around the area and um the tribe asked me to try and start gathering up some of the the information you know that he shared with these agencies <laughs> and there is
2: Oh. Almost
1: no. nothing. Um oh, God. yeah. So uh, having to go back to the tribe and tell them that um basically all of that knowledge is lost because people didn't take notes is is uh is the knowledge. exact
0: word I was thinking yeah, of too. That's a shame.
1: Yes. Yes. So really simple thing, but it can it can make a huge impact. Um and just, and share, share your resources. And again, this is something that I've seen people, archaeologists, um, do a great job at. But, um, you know, they're interested in a lot of the same resources you are, and you're interested in a lot of the resources that they have in their archives. Um, and, you know, for example, if if they come out and visit a, a place and you have those notes, a lot of times the tribes want a copy of it. So just um, just sharing resources is that another yeah really easy way to I think it's awesome yeah.
0: timing that you had that you're mentioning the, the importance of good note taking because uh on the previous episode of Go Dig a Hole, it's gonna be uh, episode thirteen. Uh it's basically an episode devoted entirely to uh taking good notes. So this is a perfect way to reiterate that.
1: I, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean uh as soon as you can like obviously in the field is ideal maybe they'll let you do video or recording um i mean obviously ask permission and make sure that you let them know that that's the only thing that you're using it for is for um you know that you're not going to publish it yeah. or anything like that um but you know <laughs> something <laughs> um and yeah if you're if you're writing it up ideally at the time but even right afterwards, but if, even if you let it sit like a day, it's amazing how, how quickly oh, yeah. you forget the details. Um, so yeah, listen to that, listen to Go Dig a Hole podcast <laughs> episode 13.
2: <laughs> Take good notes.
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, and a, just a couple other things that I'd say real quick about working with tribes is you know that the staff is insanely busy. Um, they get an obscene amount of requests for consultation. So just because they're not responding to you doesn't mean Uh, that they don't care. Um, and I mean, literally like if you add up the number of, of letters they get, I'm trying to even remember one tribe told me one time and it's, I mean, there's just no way they can't respond to everything. They can't even, I don't even know how they read everything. (laughs) But, um, so, you know, give it time, um, call them back doesn't necessarily mean that they don't care um and then you know just relax and they're just people (laughs) you know they're hilarious joke with them you know it doesn't i think a lot of times um archaeologists when they talk to me they're really 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 terrified to work with tribes and you know they're not i mean you may get the initial let me explain the history to you Um, so you may have an uncomfortable conversation at first, but, um, you know, they're, they're people and, um, just, yeah, relax, joke, build that relationship like you would with anybody else. And also know that within, within tribes, just like within the U S as a whole, different people know different things, you know, like women's knowledge is different than men's knowledge, which. You know, like views are going to be different between people, and that's not a sign of inauthenticity. It's oh, a sign of authenticity. That's
0: an incredible point. So, like, oh,
1: you, an incredible. Yeah. <laughs> um, a lot of times, I feel like people um, will hear a tribe say two different things and be like, "Well, clearly, you just don't know." Then, but if you ask an Amer, you know, a couple Americans for their opinion on something you're going to get, you know, Oh yeah. I mean, you
0: can ask somebody their opinion about barbecue and you're, you know, depending on where you are, you're going to have like 30 (laughs) different answers.
1: (laughs) Right. Right. So yeah. Um, those are the big things. Um, if you want to learn more, I mean, um, Tom King's books are really great. They're really great intro to a lot of this. Um, and he also makes the important point that i think it's forgotten sometimes that the the national historic preservation act is not only talking about archaeology when it refers to cultural resources um so that importance of having tribal monitors maybe or an ethnographic project or um looking at landscapes and plants as possible yeah. cultural resources um, so, if you're an archaeologist, just remember that that cultural resources and the National Historic Preservation Act goes really far beyond. So, if you're looking at a site that you know maybe the the archaeology site itself isn't going to be impacted, but is the viewscape for that archaeology site going to be impacted? The tribe might care a lot about that, even if the place itself doesn't seem like it's being impacted, or you know, like. There's always the examples of, of shrines that might just look yeah. like a rock. And you know, that's, that's where tribal monitors can especially be really valuable, but you know, those are, those are cultural resources too. Yeah. Archaeology.
0: Those are really good points on how there's so much overlap between, you know, cultural ethnography and archeology span all wrapped up in yeah. working with tribes.
1: Yeah. Sorry. I hope I didn't get too like, (laughs) this is all my advice. (laughs) No,
0: I really uh... loved it. And I think it's, it's all (laughs) incredibly useful. And like I had said earlier, you know, I I've learned a lot just from our conversation today and I have a really good feeling that a lot of our listeners
2: will as well.
1: Good, good. Yeah. And I have, um, there's more resources on my business website, Um, livingheritageanthropology.org. You know, it has like links to all the tribal consultation laws, um, some other websites that are really helpful, different things like that. Or you're always welcome to reach out to me if you have any questions as well. It's got my uh, email and everything on there. Or I'm on Facebook, Living Heritage Anthropology or Twitter
2: um, yeah living heritage
0: i'll make sure to link so. all of those in the show notes and uh people can find those on uh, archaeologypodcast.com under the go dig a hole section and then uh I, i'd imagine here pretty soon we're also going to have a section for uh the living heritage podcast um but i'll make sure because i know a few yeah. undergrads that are very interested in this and i'm going to make sure to send them your way and uh, at least tell them to check out you know your all website right. and your social media
1: for sure, and the podcast I've I've done a couple of episodes so far, and nice. they're really interesting. Um, so, for example, one of the first one um, was an interview with the the tribal program manager at Grand Canyon, and she was talking a lot about um, about some of the different things that we talked about on today's podcast, but more of like a one solid example of Grand Canyon. Although, actually, she gets into um, some other really interesting topics too like NAGPRA on the Navajo Nation or um, she worked on the Ooh. Exxon Valdez oil spill in Alaska actually yeah um, so some really interesting stuff that might give a little bit more um, flesh to, yeah, to what I've been talking yeah. about today
0: well Jessica thank you so much for your time and uh, I'm looking forward to staying in touch
2: yeah thank you too.
0: Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks again for listening. Thanks again for reaching out on social media. Uh, Go to Go is on Facebook. Um, all of the uh, co-hosts here uh, monitor the Facebook. So if you have any ideas or feedback or, you know, just want to get in touch with us, uh, hit us up on Facebook. Uh, we're also on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, it's just slightly different f- flavors. Uh, it's a little more... Uh, um, just my content on those. Um, but uh, yeah, like I said at the beginning of the episode, stay tuned. Uh, we're going to have a lot more stuff coming down the pipeline in 2020, and we're all really excited. Um, so we'll talk to you soon. Uh, thanks again to the band Invaders for letting us use their song, Dig a Hole, off of the album of the same name, Dig a Hole. You can find them on Bandcamp. Uh, just search. Invaders on Bandcamp. Uh look for Dig a Hole. Uh whole album's really good. Uh special thanks to JC Dennison, their drummer who's a good friend of mine from
2: louisville